Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Tony Gillis, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Rutgers University, and he is here to talk about conditionals. Tony Gillis, welcome. Hi, Matt. Thanks. So philosophers are really interested in conditional statements, which are if-then statements. So if I put sugar in my coffee, then it'll taste good. Statements like that. People in all different areas of philosophy lately have been interested in conditionals. Why is that? Why are conditionals so interesting? Well, they're interesting in philosophy for lots of reasons, but they're interesting full stop because we use them all the time in regular conversation. So they're useful for figuring out whether or not we have to order more beer. So if I say to you when we're at the pub, if we're all out of beer, it's time for you to order another round. And in fact, we are all out of beer. Guess what? You're up for buying the next round. So linking up matters of fact with some conditional bits is what they're good for. We use them all the time for that, figuring out what you're going to do next, figuring out where we should look for lost items. If I've lost some of my marbles, and I know that some of them are over here and others of them are over there, I might ask you to help me and say, look, if they're not in the place I look, then go check the garage, because I haven't looked there yet. So they're good for structuring our uncertainty about where things are. They're good for figuring out what we should do next. So they're just good, full stop. The role they have in different areas of philosophy tend to be because they help us hook up some things that we're certain about with other things that we're uncertain about. And so philosophers naturally reach for them when they're doing their theorizing, like philosophy of science for causation or something like that. But the main reason why they're interesting is just because they're a part of our regular cognitive toolbox as humans. One of the things that you've worked on a lot is this project of giving a semantics for conditional statements, which you can think of as trying to give a formal theory of what a conditional if-then statement means. What are some of the challenges there? Why is it difficult to say what, if I put sugar in my coffee, it'll taste good, means? Well, once you're interested in, in talking about conditionals, you get interested in this problem. Okay, what is it that they express? So we somehow use them to convey conditional information to one another. If such and such is or turns out to be the case, then such and such might or must be the case. So if I put sugar in my coffee, then it will taste sweet, something like that. So that's the idea of conditional information. Okay, so now we haven't said anything at all. We've just said conditional somehow say something about conditional information. What's that conditional information? The project of saying how conditionals manage to express this conditional information is the project comes in kind of two steps. One is to figure out what it is they say. Somehow they relate certain possibilities or scenarios to other possibilities. They re relate the scenarios in which the first part of the conditional statement, the if part, is true to scenarios in which the then part is true. And they do this systematically. So we have to figure out first what they mean. And then the second task 
is to figure out how it is that they can carry that meaning. So how it is that they can contribute that conditional information when the sentence occurs surrounded by other sentences or other logical words like not. It's not the case that. So we want to figure out what if-then means so that it fits in with what we think not means. And we want to figure out what if-then means so it fits together and plays nicely with what we think and means and the rest of our logical vocabulary. So philosophers draw a distinction between indicative conditionals and what are variously called either counterfactual conditionals or subjunctive conditionals. What's the difference between those two kinds of statement? Well, like a lot of things in philosophy, we can pick out clear cases on either side of this divide without knowing exactly where the line is, and that's the case here. So indicative conditionals, just think of them as the ordinary plain if-then conditionals. If the Cubs get good pitching, they'll win the pennant this year. Or if my red marble is under the sofa, my yellow marble is in the box. The counterfactual or subjunctive conditionals are the fancy conditionals with funny-looking if parts and funny-looking then parts. Things like, if the Cubs had gotten good pitching and timely hitting last year, though we know they didn't, they would have contended for the pennant, though they didn't. Or, if I were to strike this match, it would light, but I'm not going to strike it. So those are sometimes called subjunctive because of the funny marking in them, the woods and the words and the if-it-had-been-that's. Um, it's not a great name, but it's kind of entrenched. Alternatively, they're called counterfactual because the idea is the if part is about some scenario or possibility that either isn't the case or might not be the case, something like that. Maybe we should focus on indicatives first, though, because those, those are the ones that are more familiar. So what are some of the challenges that arise in trying to spell out what these simpler conditionals, these if-then without all the fancy subjunctive mood language, what they mean? So there's a tight connection between certain indicative conditionals, regular if-then conditionals, and a notion of logical consequence or patterns of reasoning that are impeccable and unimpeachable. And there are two ways to see that. So a regular if-then, like if Alex comes to the party, Billy will come to the party, together with the fact that Alex is coming to the party, that is perfect grounds for concluding Billy will come to the party. Unimpeachable grounds. So there we go from an ordinary indicative plus the truth of the antecedent part, the if part, to the truth of the then part. So we've got a piece of reasoning that links the conditional plus its if part to something else. But the connection also goes the other way. How do we reason our way to a regular indicative conditional? The idea is, suppose you've got some stock of information, beliefs, or whatever, and you add to that temporarily the hypothesis. Hmm, suppose Alex comes to the party. Now suppose that hypothesis, together with your other stuff, is enough to allow you to infer, impeccably and unimpeachably, that Billy will come. Well, in that case, then your regular, unadorned stock of information should allow you to, on its own, conclude, impeccably, unimpeachably, the conditional. If Alex comes, then Billy comes. So the point is, is that we've got this tight connection between conditionals and what they license us to infer, and what conditions are such that we can infer these conditionals. And that's all bound up with this notion of what patterns of reasoning are completely unimpeachable and impeccable. Okay. So that's the notion of logical consequence tied to what these conditionals might mean. So the challenge is, 
there are certain patterns of reasoning, both from and to regular conditionals, that seem like we definitely want to say they're unimpeachable and impeccable. The problem is that puts constraints on what we can say the if might mean, and the constraints are constraints that conspire to lead us to believe that that can't be anything the if might mean. So on the one hand, we've got this set of patterns of reasoning that we desperately want the meaning of the conditionals to license as impeccable, but together those patterns of reasoning constrain this, the, what we can say if might mean in ways that we don't want. So going in, not really knowing in advance what if then means, we're going to observe, oh, look, these patterns of reasoning involving if then statements are definitely good patterns of reasoning. Yes. But then we're going to get stuck because we're going to see that whatever if then has to mean in order for those patterns of reasoning to be good, it has to mean something that intuitively we think it can't mean. Exactly. So let me give you an example. So the simplest kind of constraint like this is a famous form of argument, sometimes called the direct argument or the or to if inference. So suppose there's been a murder at the mansion and there are just two suspects, the butler and the gardener. So I reason this way to you and we're investigating. Either the butler did it or the gardener did it. So I conclude if it wasn't the butler, it was the gardener. Looks impeccable. We go from some or statement that we think is true and conclude from that some ordinary if-then statement that must be true if the or statement is true. There's a really simple argument, simple proof that shows that if we treat this pattern of argument as always as impeccable as it seems, then the only thing ordinary if-thens can mean is something that we think they can't mean. So the only thing that this could mean, something like if the butler didn't do it, then the gardener did, is either the butler did it or the gardener did it. It can only mean not the if part or the then part. Even if the if part and the then part have no connection to each other, even if the, we know that the if part is false, then the whole conditional becomes true automatically. And we think that this is not what ordinary if-then statements mean. Yeah, it seems very counterintuitive to think that if I put sugar in my coffee, it'll taste good just means either I don't put sugar in my coffee or, or it, it tastes, tastes good. good. Exactly. Yeah. That's much too weak. Yeah, so we really seem to be stuck there then because we either have to say, look, this inference, either the butler did it or the gardener did it. Therefore, if the butler didn't do it, the gardener did, is a bad inference. Or we have to say that an if-then statement just means either not the if part or the then part. Right. And yeah, that seems highly counterintuitive. We haven't gone into the full argument for this, uh, but such arguments have been given by philosophers. What are some other arguments that philosophers have given to um, drive us to dilemma? So this is one of a, there are a range of arguments. They all have the similar flavor. So one way to, to approach it is to think, well, this weakest thing that we were driven to, saying that the ordinary if-then statements mean either not the if part or the then part is true. You can think of that as the minimal weakest thing that a conditional could mean. At the other end of the logical spectrum lies something like logical implication, necessary connection between the if part and the then part. Like it's logically impossible for the if part to be true and the then part to be false. And that's the strongest thing a conditional could possibly mean. And there are arguments which suggest that the indicative conditional, if it's to lie in between these two points on the spectrum, then if it obeys one additional simple inference pattern, if there's one simple pattern of reasoning that's 
deemed impeccable and unimpeachable that the if-then is involved in, then it's got to be, again, equal to meaning either not the if part or the then part. So it collapses all the way down to the lowest point on the logical spectrum. And the kind of inference that is deemed as impeccable reasoning is a simple one. Things like, if Lenny is away, then if Carl is away, then sector 7G is empty. It's a complicated if-then, but it's a perfectly good if-then. From that, it looks like it's impeccable reasoning to conclude, so if Carl is away and Lenny is away, then sector 7G is empty. And vice versa, if I start with if Carl is away and Lenny is away, then sector 7G is empty. It's unimpeachable to infer from that. If Carl is away, then if Lenny is away, then sector 7G is empty. That's all we need, in addition to the claim that the indicative lies somewhere between the low end of the logical totem pole and the high end of the logical totem pole to get another argument that says it's got to be at the very bottom. Okay, so suppose we decide to bite the bullet and say, all right, fine, I'm convinced I really like those two patterns of reasoning. So I guess we just have to say that if I put sugar in the coffee, it'll taste good, means either I don't put sugar in the coffee or it tastes good. So what's wrong with biting that bullet? I mean, I'm feeling really moved to bite it now. Yeah, and for good reason, because those do seem like impeccable, unimpeachable bits of reasoning. So the issue is, is that if indicatives mean something so weak on this logical spectrum of what conditionals could possibly mean, so they're at the very low end of the scale, then their negations are now at the upper end of the scale. They're implausibly strong because negations do the opposite. So an example that shows that that's not quite right. There's been a murder at the mansion. There are three suspects. The culprit we know acted alone. Either the butler did it, the gardener did it, or the driver did it. And we've been doing some investigating. And I conclude rashly that if the butler didn't do it, the gardener did. But you, being a seasoned veteran, disagree. You say, no, that's not true. It's not so that if the butler did it, the gardener did. The driver still might be the culprit, you say to me. Which I think you're exactly right, so I take it back. The issue is, is if the indicative conditional means something so implausibly weak then the negation in your mouth should commit you to something much stronger. When you say, no, it's not true that if the butler didn't do it, the gardener did, it looks like you are automatically signed up for thinking the butler didn't do it, and moreover, the gardener did. But you're not signed up for that at all. All you were signed up for is the possibility that the butler didn't do it and the gardener didn't. And you were fine with that possibility because, after all, we hadn't ruled out the driver. So you were exactly right, and I was in the wrong. So this suggests that indicative conditionals can't mean something as implausibly weak as we had thought. The puzzle is, how could they say something more than this weak theory, given the other bits of reasoning that we want to claim are impeccable and unimpeachable? So how could they say something more than that? And what is this more that they could say? I think that ties back nicely into the point you made earlier about, you know, one of the principal challenges here is to square what we know about the meaning of if-then with what we know about the meaning of not. So... It seems like if there's any wiggle room here, we have to maybe either complicate our theory of what if-then means, or we have to complicate our theory of what not means. Yeah, it seem, and the second one seems like not the path. <laughs> <laughs> right? We're pretty good on not most of the time. It's the if that's been the trouble. And a nice way of thinking about it is once we've arranged our options on this logical spectrum, now we know what our choices are. We can give up one or another inference pattern and maybe explain why, even though it seemed good 
and is probably good most of the time, it's not logically impeccable all the time. That's a possibility. Another possibility is to bite the bullet hard and say, no, 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 ifs really do mean this weak thing, and we'll have to explain away the interaction with not in some other fashion. It's fine. That's a, that's a path. Or find something wrong with our original reasoning. Those are really the three options. So which of those options do you prefer? I like a sneaky option, which suggests that there's something wrong with our original reasoning. So rather than thinking that the conditional is implausibly weak, I think that the conditional, ordinary indicative conditionals, means something like what philosophers sometimes call a strict conditional. A strict conditional is one that says all of the relevant scenarios in which the if part is true are scenarios in which the then part is true. It's a sneaky version. I should probably call it a clever version instead of sneaky. In that the pattern of reasoning that got us into this trouble is this one linking up complicated if-thens, ones like if Lenny is away, then if Carl is away, then sector 7G is empty, with slightly simpler conditionals with fancy if parts. If Lenny is away and Carl is away, then sector 7G is empty. And notoriously, strict conditionals which say all the relevant possibilities in which the if part is true or possibilities where the then part is true don't license this pattern of reasoning as impeccable and unimpeachable for logical reasons. I want to advocate for a version of the strict conditional which can nevertheless license this as impeccable, unimpeachable inference. So the motivation is actually comes from, as almost everything in this area of philosophy comes from, a tiny footnote in a great paper by Frank Ramsey, the Cambridge philosopher from the early uh, 1920s. So in this footnote, Ramsey asks, if two people are arguing if P will Q, and both are in doubt as to P, they're hypothetically adding P to their stock of beliefs and arguing on that basis about Q. And something like this, in various forms, is called the Ramsey test for conditionals. And it's usually thought of as a way of talking about when you should believe or accept a conditional. And the high-level gloss is something like, in a certain state, you should believe a conditional if such-and-such, then so-and-so, just in case adding such-and-such hypothetically to your state of belief or knowledge will result in you thinking that so-and-so is true. But rather than thinking of that as a story about belief or acceptance, we can bootstrap that into a story about when a conditional is true. So the idea is is that for a strict conditional, a strict conditional is true in a certain situation, scenario, just in case all the relevant scenarios in which the if part is true are scenarios in which the then part is true. But a funny thing about language, some parts of language are sensitive to the scenarios in which we interpret them. So for instance, when I'm speaking and I say I'm hungry, that little bit I picks out me, the speaker, picks out Tony. Those same words in your mouth pick out somebody else. So when I say I'm hungry, that's one scenario, and I picks out in that scenario Tony, the speaker. And when you say it, it's a different scenario, picks out a different person, you. So the idea is, is that when we hypothetically add the material of the if part of a conditional to a scenario, to focus in on just the scenarios in which the such and such part is true, that alters the scenario for checking whether 
the then so-and-so part is true. So the if part, on my way of thinking of things, has these two jobs. The first job it has to do is it restricts the set of scenarios in which we look. When you say, if I put sugar in my coffee, the sugar will taste sweet. That's going to be true in a situation, just in case all the relevant scenarios in which you put sugar in your coffee. So we ignore the ones in which you don't. So we zoom in on just the ones where the if part is true. That's the first job, the zooming in part. The second job that the if part does is it contributes to the scenario that we use for evaluating whether the then part is true. So we look inside the set of scenarios in which you put sugar in your coffee, and we check in those scenarios whether the sentence, the coffee tastes sweet, is true with respect to that restricted scenario. So in other words, we look to see whether it's true in all of those situations that the coffee tastes sweet, given that you put sugar in it. That's the second job. Now, the first and second job for simple conditionals, like the ones that we've mostly been talking about, those are jobs that are done so simultaneously we didn't notice that there were two jobs happening. But for the target piece of reasoning that got us going, the then part wasn't simple. The then part was itself a conditional statement. If Carl is away, then if Lenny is away, sector 7G is empty. So the then part there was itself a conditional statement. So on this way of telling the strict conditional story, when we get to zooming in on the situations in which Carl is away, and we use that constrained set of situations as the backdrop against which we interpret, then if Lenny is away, then sector 7G is empty. Then that switch in situations, the second job that the if part had to do, now is a difference that makes a difference, so that we license as impeccable inference, unimpeachable, always logically okay to go from this complicated conditional to the simpler one with the fancy antecedent. If Carl is away and Lenny is away, then sector 7G is empty. And that's the only way a strict conditional story can make good on this promise. Okay, so the response that you would prefer to this dilemma is to say that, well, if then basically does mean this, this kind of statement that philosophers invented, the strict conditional, you know, where you're saying every situation in which the if part is true is a situation in which the then part is true. But what you want to do is add additional nuance to the meaning of the strict conditional so that it's still basically the same thing as the old strict conditional, except it gets this pattern of inference right, which the old strict conditional didn't. That's right. That's right. And the idea is, is that you want the strict conditional to reflect what conditionals are good for, which is when we reason about if-thens, we want to take on board the information that the if part expresses. And that gets built into this way of thinking about the strict conditional. What about the other kind of conditional we talked about? So would the same approach be a good way to think about the meaning of if I had put sugar in my coffee, it would have tasted good, even though, as a matter of fact, I didn't put sugar in coffee and it doesn't taste good. Would that same approach work there? It's not far off. So a lot of philosophers think that there's a sharp divide between the indicative and the counterfactual. Some of them signing up for a theory of the indicative that looks nothing like what they want to say about what counterfactuals might mean. Others think this is a cost. I agree with them. If means more or less one thing. And when you combine it with a fancy antecedent, a fancy if part that says if had been, were, stuff like that, and then you have some fancy then part. It means something different, and we can attest to that, uh, but there are predictable differences in what those meanings are and where they come from. So first, we know that they must mean something different. 
famous pair, not due to me. You can see this by contrasting an indicative with one if part and one then part with a parallel counterfactual, same if part, same then part, and we're all signed up for thinking one of them is true and the other is false, and so they can't just be saying the same thing. So famous example, if Oswald hadn't killed Kennedy, someone else would have. That, I think, is probably false. But I want to agree with the indicative. If Oswald didn't kill Kennedy, someone else did. I think that's probably true. So whatever these things mean, it looks like they must mean different things. And that's presumably because in one case, we're thinking about like alternate possible histories. That's the counterfactual one. And the other case, we're just sorting through the facts about what actually happened. Exactly. Right. Maybe our information is wrong, but we're pretty sure it was Oswald and he acted alone. Whereas in the counterfactual case, we're thinking, well, suppose Oswald hadn't done it. And unless we've got some sort of strange fatalist conception of history, where if Oswald hadn't been the guy to do it, someone else would have stepped in and done it. I suppose some people think of Shakespeare like that. Then we're not going to think that that counterfactual is true. So these look like very different beasts, and it would be great if we could account for their differences, completely attestable differences, while still saying that the core meaning of if is roughly the same. So if you favor something like a strict conditional account of the indicative, it would be great if you could tell a similar flavored story that all the relevant if possibilities are then possibilities. It would be great if you could tell that story that the difficulty will lie in saying what the relevant possibilities are. They're not going to necessarily be the same ones for the indicative and the counterfactual. As a matter of fact, that's not the most popular way of saying what it is that counterfactuals mean. The most popular way is something like saying, well, a counterfactual like, if Oswald hadn't killed Kennedy, then someone else would have. What that's expressing is something like, in the scenarios which are pretty much like the way the facts actually went, but in which we alter it so that Oswald doesn't shoot Kennedy, what's the outcome? And the thought is that in the most similar situations in which Oswald doesn't kill Kennedy, no one does. And so that's why we think that counterfactual is false. There also seems to be a difference, doesn't there, in that it's if it was implausible to say that an indicative conditional meant not the if part or the then part, it's really implausible to say that the meaning of a counterfactual conditional is either not the if part or the then part. Yeah, complete non-starter. Most counterfactuals, well, I don't know about most, many counterfactuals are most useful when we're dead sure that the if part is false. I am not going to strike this match. If I had struck it, it would have lit. If we're signed up for thinking the if-then statement, even in the counterfactual case, means simply either not the if part or the then part, then we're in a heap of trouble because all interesting counterfactuals are true automatically. That's not a good theory because they're not all true. <laughs> Nothing like that could be what the counterfactual means. So counterfactuals were a really big topic in philosophy in the late 60s, um, the 70s. But then philosophers' uh, interest in them kind of died out because a lot of people basically thought the problem had been solved. But there recently has been a resurgence of interest in counterfactuals. Um, how did that happen? Well, it's interesting. We've come full circle. So... You're right. You're exactly right. In the 60s and 70s, philosophers got, and to some extent linguists then, 
uh, were really interested in counterfactuals. Counterfactuals had a big role to play in certain philosophical theories, and some philosophers thought, well, unless we know what counterfactuals mean, this is an illicit move in philosophical theorizing. That's one reason why they, people were interested in them. In the early 70s then, the late 60s, early 70s, uh, huge interest in, in thinking about them. And one of the key arguments that played a role in the theories in those days were these sequences, patterns of counterfactual reasoning or discourse, if you like. So these are called Sobel sequences, named after the first person who thought of them. But the idea is that counterfactuals are resistant in certain ways. Their truth is, the truth of a counterfactual isn't always persistent when you add more information to the if part. So we're thinking about a friend's party last night. We're not sure who showed up, but we've got kind of some idea of the possibilities. And so I might say to you, well, if Alex had come, it would have been fun. Seems true. Alex couldn't make it, but she's great fun. But if Alex and Billy had come, it wouldn't have been fun at all. They would have spent the night talking to only each other. That's no fun. But if Alex and Billy and Chris had all come, it would have been fun. But if Alex, Billy, and Chris, and Dave had come, it would have been dreary. And if you have a big enough circle of friends, and they're diverse enough in their personalities, then you can keep going like this, alternating between a counterfactual, which is true, and its opposite with a fancier if part, and a negation, a not, in front of the then part. And these all seem like they could be true together. It's very difficult to see how anything remotely like saying that the counterfactual says like that all of the relevant if possibilities or then possibilities could ever get the right answer here. So this motivated people thinking about a, not a strict analysis of counterfactuals, but a variably strict analysis, saying something like the, near, the most similar situations to ours in which Alex comes to the party are situations in which the party is fun. And then most similar situations to ours in which Alex and Billy had come, then it would have been a dreary party. And so the idea is that the if part says how similar a world has got to be in order to count as being relevant to the then part. So there's no fixed set of relevant possibilities throughout which we're checking whether the if parts match up with the then parts. And interest in these kind of died out after a while because, like you say, people thought we kind of had it figured out. Resurgent interest in the late 90s in these precisely because even though these Sobel sequences sound terrific when you go from a simpler if part to a more complicated if part and yet more complicated, they sound terrible in reverse, like contradictions. If Alex and Billy had come, it would have been a dreary party, but if Alex had come, it would have been fun. It's much worse in this direction. And so this is a resurgent interest, an active debate between variably strict conditionals and strict conditional counterparts. So what is it that's keeping you interested in the topic these days? Is it these reverse Sobel sequences? Well, I'll tell you a story. When I was a grad student, I went to my advisor with three plausible dissertation topics. And one of them was conditionals. And he said, not that. You've got a whole career you can waste on conditionals. And he's exactly right. He thought that conditionals were like the mafia. <laughs> Once you get in, you cannot get out. So, yeah, the reverse Sobel sequences, big active topic. I'm really interested in that. But mostly I'm interested in how it is that our conditional information, somehow connected to what is or might have been the case, hooks up with other stuff we know in both how we communicate with each other and how we figure out what it is best to do. 
Tony Gillis, I think I can safely say that if you hadn't shown up for this interview, I would have had a dreary time. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Anytime. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.